I ask you to turn in your copies of the Bible, if you have one, although the words should be on the screen, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 in the New Testament. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. Recently, a pastor that I respect, uh, he's a pastor at First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida now, but I actually had a class with him while I was in seminary. He was doing a different job. Uh, he has been lately releasing some videos uh, in his community, and the target audience for these videos are not people inside of his church, but they're people outside of his church in the Jacksonville, Florida area. And the reason that he's releasing these videos is because in the long history of this rather large downtown church, there have been some very odd rumors about the church that have spread. And nobody's really sure how they got started. Uh, no one understands where these things got going, but they're almost like these little urban legends. And he, as a pastor, just kind of feels the need to kind of step in and say, uh, I just want to address these things. And if you're outside of our church community, I just want to, just, just want to like elephant in the room kind of thing. And he started, the first one that he released last week was this rumor that if you're going to come and attend First Baptist Jacksonville, you have to show the church your W-2. And I, I'm glad that you laughed at that because it is just as confusing to those people and it's confusing to him as a pastor why that rumor would have ever got started. He, he said, listen, I don't know where or why these silly things got started. Please don't bring us your W-2s. Like, we're, we're not CPAs. If you bring them to us, we won't know what to do with them. We, we don't have any interest in them. We don't even care if you have one or not. We just want you to come and hear about Jesus. Now, as foolish as that may sound, uh, as difficult as it is, I can't imagine like being a pastor having to address that. But it reminds me of just how capable Satan is at convincing people that the gospel has borders. The enemy is always active in trying to convince people that there is a certain class of people or a certain kind of track record, and for these people, the gospel is off limits to them. There's a certain kind of people for whom the gospel is available and a certain kind of people for whom the gospel is not available. The enemy is very, very active in trying to sow those seeds inside the church and outside the church. Today, we see in Titus, in the passage that I'm about to read, that the gospel really is for everybody and for anybody who will Come. So I want to read these verses, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, which is just the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's read together Titus 2, verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
For, this is a purpose statement. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Would you pray with me? Lord, today... As a church, we have attempted to foreground, to highlight, to put on a pedestal your word. We have attempted to be very intentional about how we do this. We have tried to pray your word. We have tried to read your word. We have tried to make sure that the songs that we are singing are not just singing things that make us emotionally feel good, but they are actually singing your word. And now, God, I'm attempting to teach from your word, to preach your word. And I stand on this promise that your Bible has given us that your word will do its work. Would you let that be the case in my heart? Would you let that be the case in the heart of every person here, no matter where they stand with you? Would you do this work so that we can see that the gospel is a gospel without borders? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, Gospel Without Borders, for this reason. We see in Titus today that that the good news of Jesus is the one thing that cuts across all geography, all socioeconomic status, all races, and all cultures. All ages, the gospel is the one thread that runs through the entire world and it meets every single human who is walking the earth and who has ever walked the earth with the solution to our basic needs. It is the one constant. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a a man who was imprisoned in the Soviet gulags, he wrote about human evil. This, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Solzhenitsyn saw that evil was everywhere. He was imprisoned as a political dissident 
for his teachings and his words and in print. And he said, out of his experience, that he came to know that the one true constant in all of human experience is the fact that we are broken, that we have evil living inside of us. And he was right about that. He was, in a deeply biblical way, he was right about that, that that in a Genesis 3 world, after the fall, after sin has infected everything and caused thorns and thistles to grow and caused all kinds of evil to grow up in our hearts, we know that there are no borders on sin and its infection in all of our lives. We turn on the nightly news and we see it and we see the the lengths that a person can go to deceive. I, I, I don't know if, if any of you have been following the, the Murdoch trial, the, the stuff, the murder stuff that's going on in the low country of South Carolina. Some of you might have missed a lot of work trying to live stream that this week and things like that. That's not a, that's not a confession. I'm just saying, I'm saying you may have done that. I wouldn't know anything about that. And you know, this guy, and I don't, I don't know if he's guilty or not, He's done so much bad stuff that he has painted himself into a corner where it's very hard to believe him. He, he's lied so much and he's, he's, t- he's admitted that he has lied so much that now he's, he's like painted into this corner and, and he's saying, I know that I lied about this. I know I stole money from these people. I know I lied about that. I know I lied to the police about this and I lied to the investigator about this and I stole money from these three people too, but I'm trying to tell you I did not kill my wife and son. And I don't know, could this be the one thing that he's telling the truth about? Or is he just this slick? I don't know. It's like, what I do know is that we have an incredible capacity to deceive and to deceive ourselves. We have an incredible capacity for evil. But the good news is this. Is that in Titus chapter 2, as true as it is that sin and evil is everywhere... Titus chapter 2 presents the gospel as the solution that can go anywhere that sin has ever infected. There is no class of people for whom it is off limits. Let's remember the, the last couple of sermons here in Titus. It's like Paul is telling Titus about all these different classes of people. He talks about the older men, and he says older men should be like this. Then he talks about the, the older women. He says the older women should be like this. And then he talks about the younger men. He says younger men should, should be like this, and the older men should be training them up. And then he talks about the younger women. And he says the older women should be training them up so that they can... Come to know the Lord and, and all these different classes of people, old men, old women, young men, young women, and now he pivots. What's he doing here in verse 9? Bond servants are to be sub, subject uh, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What we see here is this pivot. Paul is bringing in, seemingly, every class of people who could have possibly existed in Rome in the first century. Old men, older women, younger men, younger women, even the slaves. He's saying the gospel is available to them. Now, I need to do a little bit of work here. I'm tempted to just go on this huge sidebar 
about whether or not the Bible condones slavery, spoiler alert, the answer is no, it does not. And I don't, space and time did not allow me to just do this whole big sidebar and give a big answer for this. But if you pick up the paper copy of the sermon, which is available here and back there, there is an article that's available for free online, a chapter-length treatment by a, uh, a scholar called Jim Hamilton. He uh, is, is a, a scholar in Louisville, Kentucky, and he has answered this question specifically. And so maybe if you want a longer answer to this question, you can submit the online form and ask the pastor a question. And on Sunday nights at 6 p.m., you can come back and hear me answer these questions. We'll be doing that tonight at 6 o'clock. We'll be answering one of your questions. I encourage you to return for that. So if you can just allow me, if you can grant me for the sake of time, that what the Bible's doing here is not trying to give a pass on slavery. It's not trying to endorse or approve of slavery. What is it trying to do? Why does the Bible seem to be giving directions on how, to, how slaves are to act toward their masters? The reason that it's giving directions on how slaves or bondservants, remember Paul frequently calls Christians bondservants or slaves of Jesus, the reason that Paul is giving them instructions on how to live is because Paul understands that even for those who are in bondage, even for those who are in captivity, the gospel is available to them too. They can be expected to hear the gospel and believe. You can imagine this class of people who feels that maybe for them, the gospel, the rights that come from knowing God are off limits to them. Because imagine being a slave, they have no rights. They're owned by another person. They may they may wrongly assume that the gospel would be the same way, that this freedom from my sin is off limits to me. See, it would be good for slaves to be free in the first century, and I believe that the Bible teaches in many places that the gospel is a gospel that frees the slave, literally and spiritually. But as long as we live in a Genesis 3 world, Human sin has the ability to keep people from living the way that God intended for us to live in the garden. And so what Paul is saying here is that even for the slave, if your situation cannot be resolved right now, you can still know God. It's the beauty of the gospel. And we should remember that even though slavery in its very particular and heinous form that persisted in the United States and in the colonies for so long, is behind us in the rearview mirror in one way, that there are many who are captivated in our land right now in the evil system of human trafficking. And around the world, there are literal slaves who still exist today. The gospel, the beauty of the gospel is this. No matter if you are enslaved, captivated by another person, no matter if you are in the hospital, captivated by your own failing body. No matter if you are in prison, captivated as a result of your own actions. No matter if you're living in a closed country, captivated by your government, can't worship freely. No matter if you're captivated by anything in this life which will last for only a few decades, the gospel doesn't have borders. The good news of Jesus is available to anyone and everyone even before their situation can change. 
Even if the practical outworking of the gospel doesn't, ke- keep up, doesn't catch up to reform the situation that you exist in, you can still know God and have hope in the next life. The gospel is not primarily a message about how to get everything that we want here and now in this life. Instead, it is a message about a coming kingdom. What this passage says, the blessed hope that is coming. These words are no trite words because Paul's writing to Titus, who's a who's a pastor in a place where he's likely going to experience persecution, where he's likely going to be enslaved by his own government. And so, what he says is the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's kind of the pre-point. What about slaves? I'm sorry I was not able to give a, a full treatment of that, but get online today, scroll down on our Facebook page, submit the form. I'll answer that question later if you would like. Point number one, grace is for everybody who will come. Grace is for everybody who will come. Look at verse 11. This is the rationale. Remember, see that word for, which is a purpose statement? He's saying, older men, you have a place in the gospel. Older women, you have a place in the gospel. Younger men, you have a place. Younger women, you have a place. Even bondservants who are existing in this evil structure in first century Rome, you have a place in God's kingdom. Why? For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. If I could take a liberty, for all kinds of people, all classes, all segments, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's not overlook this word grace. We use it a lot, don't we? Grace, I just need a little grace today. You know, I ask for grace. You know, Lord, thank you for the grace of God. But for the grace of God go I. I must have been born a lucky guy. You can sing on a... Country music station later today, maybe. Let's not overlook this. Grace is a theme in Paul. If you noticed when he opens all of, uh, most of his letters in the New Testament, grace and peace from God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant. Paul calls himself a bondservant. He says, grace and peace to you. This is a, something that means very, something very deeply for Paul. This grace of God, and let's not forget that it was the grace of God that radically changed Paul. These are no, this is no stock opening to his letter. This word, grace, has deep meaning for him. One commentator that I read noted that it was the grace of God that rescued Paul from his homicidal religiosity. He was so religious and so zealous in his former path that he was willing to kill for it. And it was the grace of God that rescued him from that. Grace is no mere stock phrase for Paul. It's something that means something deep to him. And in 1 Timothy 14, uh, 14 and, and the verses surrounding this, Paul talks about this. Listen to his own testimony. He says, I thank him who has given me strength Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord 
overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the chief, maybe your translation of the Bible says. Paul is a guy who understands that the gospel is for everybody because he understood that the gospel was for him. Somebody who was so entrapped in his idolatry that he was willing to kill Christians thinking that he was doing something good. Grace is no mere catchphrase for this guy. The grace of God has appeared. And this changes everything for him. And it should change everything for us. This grace that has appeared demands something from us. Listen to how Paul tells Titus something in the next chapter, Titus 3. Maybe if you've got your Bible open, you can look over to Titus 3, 3. It says this, I'll read it to you. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves, isn't that interesting wording? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he uses the same language, appeared. He saved us. Not because of works that we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, which just means our, our, our spiritual eyes were open, our blindness was gone, our, the, the new birth that John chapter 3 talks about. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's almost like Paul is, is giving this, this testimony of his life. He says, I was walking in these passions and in these pleasures. Paul could have said, I've always wanted to be this way. I've always done this. But God comes to save us and to change us even on the deep heart level of desire. He says, I was being led astray. You could almost have a picture of a man with a, with a, with a shackle around his neck and a chain hanging from it and, and somebody leading him wherever he wanted him to go. And that's what Paul says it was like for me and for us before we knew Jesus. And he saved us. When? when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. Look at how John talks about it in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. It was made visible. Sounds a lot like saying it appeared. And we have seen it and testified to it and, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, friends, this is where we start to notice all of the, of the little strings that are left dangling in Titus start to get tied together into this one knot. I've heard, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about trials and, and, and murder trials and things like that, but I remember listening one time to a podcast about strategies that these prosecutors have when they're trying to make their, their case. A lot of times they'll come up and ask the witness on the stand a question and you won't really be sure where the question's going or what meaning it has. He just leaves it hanging there. And he comes up later and there's maybe a, a professional expert witness and he asks this question and the, the witness gives an answer. And the prosecutor just goes on and it's like, oh, I wonder why he asked that. Doesn't make any sense. And then finally, maybe the, the guilty per, or the person that's charged takes the stand and he asks him a few questions and it's not really clear why he's asking these random, obscure, detail kind of questions. And he just leaves them alone. And the defense attorney's like, do I need to respond to that? Or what, what, what's that about? And the reason is there's a strategy that he leaves all these little strings, leaves all these little strings hanging so that in the closing argument, so that the other side won't be prepared for it. In the closing argument, he can take all these little strings that are dangling and tie them together and show how they all connect. It's like the crazy guy in his room and he's, he's got all these newspaper clippings up on the wall and all these little red pieces of string and, you know, and, and push pins uh, attaching everything, showing how it all fits in. And, and what, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I've been talking to you about church government, about having elders in your church. And I've been talking to you about uncomfortable things like church discipline and how if there's someone in your church that's causing division, you need to address it. You just can't let it go on unattended. And I've been talking to you about older men and how they're to disciple the younger men and older women and how they're to disciple the younger women. And, and these are not just random, disconnected things. And now I've even mentioned slaves. But these things are not unconnected from one another. The one thing that connects them all together is that the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. And so for that reason, we have been put here for a purpose, Titus. And that purpose is to, is to construct a church that advances this gospel as best as it possibly can through older women discipling younger women and older men discipling younger men and elders being set up so that they can biblically discharge their role and so that there can be somebody in charge when there is some kind of division that needs to be resolved and they can do their best to try to handle it. And, and, and then we need to have this understanding that, that the gospel has no borders so that you guys won't just tell the gospel and invite people who are like you to come to church, but that you will invite everybody to come to church and you will tell the gospel to everybody. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation to everybody. And so everything that we do as a church, friends, we're about to approve a budget, something as mundane as that. Everything is changing the letters on the sign out here or changing light bulbs or cleaning up cobwebs or filling the baptistry or sharing the gospel or changing a diaper in the nursery. None of it is disconnected strings. It's all connected to this one historical fact that Jesus Christ came and he was who he said he was. And because he has appeared, we need to be transformed so that the gospel can go forth. The grace of God has appeared, and this changes everything. What does the gospel do? Point number two, 
The gospel gives hope. Everyone can experience change. That's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not just that Jesus forgives our record, cancels our debt. That is good news, but that's incomplete. That's a half gospel. The full gospel is that Jesus has canceled the sin of anyone who would place their faith in him. Anyone who would say, God, would you forgive me for my sins and would you give me new life in Jesus Christ? Your sins are canceled, but there's transformation that begins to work in our lives. See if I can convince you from the scriptures. Look at verse 12. Look at what this grace does. Let's look at verse 11. I want to give you the context. For the grace of God has appeared, comma, bringing salvation for all people. That's what it does. It has appeared, and with its appearing, it is bringing something. It's bringing salvation for all people. Then another comma, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The evidence that we have been changed by the gospel is not perfection. It's not that we think that we're goody-two-shoes. The evidence that we have been changed is not merely church attendance or, 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 or something like that. The evidence that we have been changed is that our passions begin to change. We begin to no longer want the things that we used to want. We no longer live for the things that we used to live for. We have a new set of desires now. We have a new master. We have a new master if we are the slaves. Used to, we were... Slaves to the bad master, sin. But now we are slaves to the good master, Jesus Christ. And, and he says that his grace, not only has it canceled our debt in the past, but now it is training us. And that's a very unique word. This is not the usual word in Greek for, for teaching, which is like, um, I've got it written down here somewhere, didasko. I don't care if you care to know that. But that's a very stock word for, for teach. It's used all over the place. It's a very loose word or looser, a little broader. But now he uses this other word, paiduo, which means instructs or trains. You can imagine the difference between teaching and training. You know, there is a difference there, isn't there? I could, I could uh, imagine someone getting classroom teaching on something, anything. Classroom teaching on, I don't know, how to drive a semi. That doesn't train you to do it, though, does it? It takes, it takes training, instructing. It takes in the field. A, a parent trains. A teacher at school teaches, but a parent at home trains. You ever heard, well, I'm going to have to tell your mother about this. I'm going to send a note home with you. I've been able to teach you about right and wrong, but your mom and dad are going to train you about right and wrong when you get home. This is what Paul says the grace of God does. The grace of God does, doesn't simply punch our get-out-of-hell-free ticket. It trains us toward a transformed life. Verse 13, the gospel goes with us as we wait. I'll go back to verse 11. It's, it's difficult for me to stop, start in the middle of a sentence, so 
This is a very long sentence. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, that means to turn away from, ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's another comma, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope of the believer is in the future. The hope of the believer is not in this world. Friends, as Christians, one of the things that we ought to be doing is making sure that we are not making our biggest investments in this life. Because this life has a shelf life. Our biggest investments are in the blessed hope that is coming. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus asks. This helps us endure trials and trouble that we are right now, we have been assured by God that while we are waiting, Jesus is going to walk with us. That while we are enduring whatever we are enduring, one day there is a day that is coming for the Christian that every tear will be wiped away. Every injustice will be made right. And every struggle that we have with sin right now will vanish. As for now though, we wait with Christ close at hand to walk with us and comfort us and equip us. Verse 14 Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is God trying to do in the gospel? God is not simply trying to just punch, get out of hell free tickets. He's purifying for himself a people. He's drawing a unique people to himself. And if you're outside of that today, if you have never come into the family of God, I want you to see in, in Titus chapter 2 that the door is open to you. Come and, and tell Jesus that you understand that you're a sinner. Ask him to forgive you and ask him to begin a life with him today. Maybe you've been wandering and you've been, you've been far from God, but you recognize that, that my heart is pulling me back toward this people that God has purified for his own possession. Isn't that an interesting word? Possession. God is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. You almost think of somebody who just who has something that they absolutely love. I want to tell you about Kenneth Carter. I hope uh, he, he might listen to this later. I don't know. He's a guy back home and I uh, love Kenneth, and, and Kenneth, uh, Kenneth is always, you know, he never called me Greg. Uh, he always called me Gregory, you know. But you just got to know Kenneth and his voice. He didn't even say Gregory. He, every time I would walk around, you know, come in the fire department or whatever, he'd say, What do you say, Gregory? You know, <laughs> that's the best impression I can give of Kenneth. Gregory. It's just two syllables there. And when Whitney and I got married, Kenneth allowed us to, uh, to use his truck to drive in. And that's, that's his truck there. This was like his prized possession. 
he had put like a life savings into this thing to restore it. He would, and it was, it was roadworthy. He would drive it all the way to Gatlinburg to, you know, car shows and stuff, take it to cruise ins, and he'd, he'd typically win a few awards. And so he allowed me to drive that from the, uh, from the, um, from the church to where our reception was after our wedding some years ago. You could take that down, John. Um, you know, or you could just leave it up there. It's a good, good memory. But, um, you know, just a couple years ago, Kenneth always kept this truck in, uh, in, a, in an outbuilding, in a building that had a shop and a water stove in it. And uh, I think because of the water stove there, the building burned to the ground and took that truck with it, sadly. This was his possession. Right? This was his thing. He, he, was, he was proud of it. Everywhere he went, he went, went awards. He was happy to let someone else drive it. And, um, it just gives a small, maybe just a small glimmer. It's very imperfect, very far away from what is being communicated here. But God is interested in purifying for himself a special people for his own possession. And he wants you to... To be a part of that, that purifying work, to become a peculiar and unusual witness in front of a world that doesn't know him. I don't want to overlook this as we begin to land the plane, but look in verse 15 and ask yourself, why would Paul need to tell Titus this as he's kind of tying off the end of what we know as chapter 2? Declare these things. Exhort, which just means teach or encourage. Exhort and rebuke, which means correct. With all authority, let no one disregard you. I don't know what all is in the mind of Paul here, but it's interesting, isn't it, that he would need to give this direction at the end of this long set of things that the church is supposed to be and to do. Paul is telling Titus to expect to encounter opposition to this message. He, it's like he's telling Titus, you know, Titus, when you start talking about sound doctrine, there are going to be people who say, oh, don't give me all that doctrine and theology, just give me Jesus. As if you can separate the two somehow. He says, when you start talking about what older men are to look like, Stop meddling in, in their business, Titus. When you start talking about the relationship that older women should have to younger women, oh, come on, they'll figure it out. They just we, we did it. We raised kids. Why do we need to have intergenerational relationships in our church? When you start talking about how the gospel is for everybody, there might be people like, oh, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with inviting those people to church. Paul's preparing, Titus, that you might have some people in your church who are going to think this way. Who are going to say, Titus, when you start teaching that the gospel changes people, there are going to be people who are going to push back against that. Oh, I don't believe in all that. Jesus came to forgive me. He didn't come to change me. Paul closes off the chapter by telling Titus, declare these things. Why? Because they are true. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These are the words of an older pastor to a younger pastor, you might say. 
And they are inspired by God. They're put here for us as a blueprint for a church. The Bible today, friends, don't miss this. The Bible today has given us a ton of good news. That our gospel is a gospel that has no borders. Whether you think you're in the wrong kind of people because, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, past mistakes or a present sense of shame or, or maybe you didn't grow up in church and all these reasons conspire and the enemy is trying to tell you that, that this gospel and this community and this family that is called the church is not for you, the Word of God says that is a lie. The Word of God says that the gospel is for anybody who will come. The gospel is for everybody who will come. And what God is doing in churches like Trenton Baptist Church and little churches that preach the gospel all across this land and around the globe is assembling together a people purified for God's possession, for His treasure. It also tells us that we can expect to experience change. Friends, I would ask you this question as I close. If I, if, if I have been successful in convincing you that Titus 2 teaches that the gospel has no borders, can I ask you this question now? Is there a border that you feel like you have been living behind and it has kept you away from the full experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to convince you of is that that border that is in your mind has been put there by Satan, and it is an illusion. Do not live behind it any longer. Maybe it was past sin and the shame that comes from that. Maybe it was the the feeling that you have been far from the Lord for so long. This morning our Sunday school lesson was about returning to God. Praise God. Maybe you didn't grow up in church and you don't know all the right things and and, and how to to do this and how this works and why does that church do that strange thing? I have a few good words for you. No matter what border you might feel like you live behind. The grace of of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You know what the, in Greek, you know what all means? All. All. Let's pray. Lord, today, as I have attempted to do my best to put the Word of God on display, I have to believe that you are dealing in the hearts of someone or some number of people in the room here. Some have felt that they have lived behind a border to the gospel, and they see today that Jesus came to loose the shackles that even the slave can be free in this economy of God. Lord, I pray that you would expose all of these borders as the illusions that they are 
and the lies of the enemy that they are. And I pray that you would help us to see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus and coming into his people and being, or being restored to his people after returning from wandering is available to everyone who will come, to everyone who will turn away from their life and turn to Jesus. But I pray that if there's anyone in the room who has never had this experience with God before of turning to him asking for forgiveness, giving their life to him, that today would be the day of salvation. And that before we leave this room, we can rejoice that you have added someone to your family. Lord, if there are those who have recognized that maybe there have been some borders put up in their life, but that those borders are lies and they just need to return to you as our Sunday school lesson said this morning, I pray that they would whether in their pew or publicly or maybe kneeling down here at the front, Lord, I pray that we would, we would respond to you in an unrestricted way. Perhaps there's someone who, who in this room is praying for a loved one. I pray they would feel a freedom to pray even up front. I pray that we would cry out to you as a people who are humble before you. Lord, whatever response I, I ask that you would prompt us to, I pray that you would grow us, grow us in spirit, grow us in number. Help us to follow you, come what may. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.